will be making your way to Exodus chapter 12. The comment of the morning for me, he waited. I could tell he was back behind somebody who was talking to me for a while, and he waited. It was Nate Thomas, and he comes up to me and he says, are you going to be at the FBI meal tonight? And I said, I don't have anybody in that group, but if you want me to, he says, I wish you'd come. I said, great, I'll be there. And he said, and we'll fast all the way through it. <laughs> And I just wanted to lay him out right there. But what would, it look, what would it look good to a church for a preacher to knock some little kid out right there in the foyer, right? So a couple people said a couple things like the sermon made him hungry and all sorts of stuff. And so I lived through the fasting sermon. Remember Wednesday night that the, you're going to be in your regular class and different teachers are going to come around. And I forgot to mention this this morning. For those of you who teach, we did have to add Paul Wallace is just constantly creating new trouble all around the church all the time. And he's got a new class class, the singles and doubles class, and because of that we had to add another class, a seventh class to the chart. It's on, it's a new page for those of you teaching, it's on that middle table as you go out in the foyer. Grab that if you're one of those teachers, and it just shows you where the new class is added, and you'll be teaching a seventh time. So that's... Just blame it on Paul, who's away at the canoe trip. That's the easiest thing to do. We are in Exodus chapter uh, 12 and chapter 13 tonight. Is we're going to just kind of look at how the Christian observes uh, the Passover. In a very real sense, we can't say that because in Christ, he fulfilled the Old Testament, and we don't observe Passover strictly. And yet, when you are a follower of Christ, there is no question that the Passover image is fulfilled in Christ, and we do it in our lives. And we're going to be looking at that in two or three different ways tonight. Very well done reading just a moment ago, and you heard all the ingredients about kicking, uh, ki killing the lamb and eating the lamb inside one home, a communal meal. It's not just, it's not, it's not these little single meals that each person got and they ate by themselves. It was a communal meal meal and then they take that blood and they put it on the doorpost on the lintels of the house and all that you know you know this so the right lamb has to be sacrificed that's the first thing it has to be a particular kind a one-year-old male lamb without defect and you slaughtered it uh, after you raised it for three or four days and then you take that blood and you wipe it on the door and when God sees the blood he will pass over them the Christian, next slide I think, the, the Christian knows this. There are these things in the New Testament that you cannot help but see the Passover image. In John chapter 1 verse 29 we have John the Baptist saying, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and said, behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. What does that mean? If you don't know the Old Testament, you're thinking, what are you calling Jesus a lamb for? It's because he is the sacrificial lamb of the Passover who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus does that for us. We had the same problem. We're stuck in slavery just like they were, a different kind of slavery. But the same kind of cost for our redemption is required, and we can't, we can't absorb that cost at all. And that's when the Lamb of God comes and takes away the sin of the world. It explains the sacrifice of Jesus and why his blood is central to the covenant. So when he took the Lord's Supper, he said, this is my blood of the covenant, the new one. Jesus is not one lamb among many. He's the once for all, for all time lamb who takes away the sins of the world. 
It had to be the right kind of lamb, a perfect, unblemished one. And there was no human being who could fit the bill. We could all rightfully die for our own sin. But there was no one who could die for the sin of anyone else because they had to be perfect for that. There was one who was willing to die in our stead, one who was able to offer that perfect, unblemished sacrifice, and it was Jesus. But it's one thing to provide, or I should say, supply the blood. It's another thing to apply the blood. Now, if you were an Israelite back then, and you took this lamb, and you slaughtered it, and you drained the blood out, and that's all you did, and you just kind of left it in a bucket, and you ate the, the, ate the, the lamb in your house, is that going to suffice for the Lord to pass over your house? No. <laughs> You then took that blood that the lamb supplied and you took it and you applied it to your own house. You had to apply it like paint to the doorknob, the, the, the doorpost. If it was going to work for you, Jesus supplies the blood, but we have, to, we have to be willing to apply it to our own lives. In 1 John, it says it this way. Here's, he's the atoning sacrifice. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He's the atoning sacrifice that takes away our sins, not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. And yet you back up into chapter 1. Only if you're walking in the light does his blood cleanse you from your sin. Jesus is the only blood necessary to take away every sin ever committed by anybody. But he, his blood that has been supplied must be applied to your own life. How does that happen? There's a couple of equations I put together on this. I want you to see on the screen. I hope it comes across. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Raise your hand if you've sinned and you've fallen short of the glory of God. That's everybody. If you do that, what you deserve, your wage is death. How many in here deserve to die? That should be everybody. So if we've all sinned and we all deserve to die, what gives here? Well, that's when first, Second Corinthians, I put First Corinthians on that. That is incorrect. Second Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He traded places. He shed his blood and gave it to us, and he took our spot of judgment. So you must supply, you must apply the blood Jesus supplies if you're going to be able to overcome the judgment of God that is coming. Here's another equation. I hope I put it on here. Next screen. That one's not as clear. You probably can't see it as well. But Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. God says, I've, I've given you blood that will, will cover your sin. And this is the animal blood of the first six chapters of Leviticus, right? So we know this. It is going to require, and we don't know why. God is the one who sets this up, and it's just a law somewhere. It requires blood for atonement to be made. We didn't come up with this. I don't know why. Scripture just teaches this. In order for atonement for sin to come, blood must be offered. Not just any blood. Under the law, almost everything is purified by blood, Hebrews says. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's just the law, Hebrews chapter 9, right? 
And Hebrews chapter 10, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to wash away sin. Now you put all this together. If there's going to be forgiveness, blood is required. God gave them animal blood for their sin to be forgiven, and yet animal blood doesn't cover sin. Their sins in the Old Testament, God counted as forgiven, but they weren't really because there was not enough quality blood to do it. So how does it happen? Next screen, I hope, has, an extra, has the rest of it. Did I put the rest of it on there? No. It's the blood of Jesus that does it. When does that happen? Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and you compare it to Matthew chapter 26, it seems to suggest this is my blood of the covenant which is given for you for the forgiveness of sins. That's Jesus at the Lord's Supper. This is my blood of the covenant given to you for the forgiveness of sins. That same phrase is used of repentance and baptism in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, which means this. The blood Jesus supplied on the cross through baptism following repentance is applied to the believer. Just because Jesus offers blood for forgiveness doesn't mean that everyone will be forgiven. They must act and have that blood applied to them. When you repent of your sins and you're immersed in the waters of baptism, that's where the contact with the blood comes. That's what we believe. That's what Scripture teaches. So it's great. We do serve a Savior who rescued us, but, but it does require something from us. We must respond and allow Him to. The meal was to be eaten in a state of preparation. He read that too. They had to be, they had to be uh, sitting to eat in clothes that were like belted around them. It was called, if you really get the old King James, it's going to see, you're going to say, gird the loins. You know what that means? You have all your, your flowery clothes and stuff. If you can't move very well, you wrap it around you so you're ready to run. And what God said is, when you eat that lamb in the house with the blood already applied to it, when you eat it, you must be eating it ready to run because the moment I say go, you need to get up and go and leave. And I want you to leave in a hurry. I don't want you to be putting your lipstick on. I don't want you to be getting ready. I don't want you to say, well, now I need to start getting ready. No, you need to be ready when you eat that meal. Now, what's interesting is you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. He's already talked about how we've been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a new hope. You have a new birth. You have forgiveness and a new life. Therefore, verse 13 of 1 Peter, he says, prepare your minds for action. Old King James says, gird the loins of your mind. Now that you have taken advantage of the new birth, now that you've had the blood of Jesus applied to you, now that your sins are washed away, I want you to live ready at a moment's notice to live a holy life. Now that those sins are forgiven of the past, now I want you to pursue the future as a person ready for holiness. I want you dressed and ready like you are intent on being holy. I remember, I shared this with you before, trying out for baseball in high school. I wasn't any good, and I didn't like the coach, and he didn't like me, and I knew it was a failure, right? Well, one day I had, I had a debate in school, and I had to go try out for baseball that same day, and I forgot all my workout clothes at home. So I'm, I'm, I take off my little hand-knitted tie that comes down to here. Do you remember those? Anybody remember those hand-knitted ties? Yeah, you can find them sometimes in these make-fun-of-the-past stores. 
took the tie off, had a dress shirt, had dress pants, but I did have some tennis shoes, and I went out to, to take some pitches from the pitcher like that, and he looked at me real funny because it was obvious I was really serious about this tryout. When you go to the batter's box and you're in dress pants and a dress shirt with sneakers on, it is just so clear that you are intent on making the team. It'd be like this. You had this nice formal date with, with your girlfriend, and you decide, she, she says yes after you badger her to death, and it's a really nice place you're going to go to, and she comes to meet you outside the door with sweatpants and a, you know, a holy shirt on. It's obvious that you are dressed in a way that's not appropriate for what you're doing. Here's the thing. When we as Christians have been given the new hope and the new birth, we are ready for action to be holy and to make holy choices. Now that you've experienced what God wants to give, that your forgiveness has come upon you, it's time for you to be ready to be holy. Dress like it. Act like it. Go to school like you intend to be holy while you're there. Go on dates like you're intending to be holy at the end of the night just as you are at the beginning. And so this is language that references the Passover. The bread was to remain unleavened for an entire week. Now, in the Old Testament, there's no real instruction for why the unleavened bread is part of this other than you didn't get to work the yeast into it and give it time to go through it. You had to just hurriedly make this meal. And so you had unleavened bread. And for the next week, you ate unleavened bread. And every year they observe the Passover. They have the Passover one day and the Feast of Unleavened Bread the next seven. And they could not eat any leaven. And all we know is that was because of the hurry that they were in to get out. But in the New Testament, there is a different interpretation of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is addressing a church that's bragging. Look, we have a guy who's living with his father's wife. And we, we are such a grace-oriented church that we're willing to embrace this guy. And Paul says, well, you shouldn't. He's living in open rebellion against the truth of God right in the midst of the church and you guys are doing nothing about it. It's like we're boasting of, of being able to accept any sin there is in the world. And this is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You know what happens when we preach that you need to live a holy life and then there's one of our members blatantly, rebelliously, unchallenged. They aren't struggling with the sin. They're openly committing the sin and they intend to for the rest of their lives and they sit in these pews and we do nothing to address that. Do you know what happens? Everybody says, well, this is a church not serious about sin. I'll just go ahead and live any way I want to too. If you struggle, that's one thing. If you're constantly repenting and trying to battle sin, that's one thing. But if you live in open rebellion against the truth of God that we all embrace when we become subjects to the Lordship of Christ and the church does nothing about it, then don't preach it anymore because you don't care enough to, to do something about it when you see it. And this is what he says in response. Clean out that old leaven. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus has cleansed us by the sacrifice of his blood. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What he says is, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Our sins have been forgiven. So our job now is to live the rest of our lives keeping leaven out of our lives. And leaven means worldliness and sin. 
Because you see, here's the truth. When Jesus rescues you from a life of sin, it doesn't make you disregard sin in your life. It makes you disgusted with sin in your life. Anyone who says, well, God's cleansed me so I can live any way I want to, does not understand the nature of sin or the power of grace. Doesn't understand it at all because the truth is, when he cleanses you of that which harms you, you hate that which harmed you before. And you want to keep that leaven, that worldliness and sin out of your lives to honor the sacrifice he made to pay the cost of what that sin did to you. It doesn't make us want to become friendly with sin and just live any way we want to. It causes us to not want to sin. It causes us to want to keep the feast of unleavened bread, that unworldliness in us. There's one last illusion. I want you to look at Exodus 13 with me for a second. This is the strangest thing that comes out of nowhere. And he says, I want you, the Lord said to Moses, chapter 13, verse 1, consecrate or set apart for me all the firstborn of the Israelites. The firstborn of the Egyptians died. The firstborn of the Israelites were spared because of the blood on the doors. He says, I want you to set them apart. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is now mine. God didn't just overlook them and pass over them. He claimed them. Those firstborn of the Israelites, God looked at as he went by and said, that's mine, and that's mine. I'm going to claim them. You can buy them back. You can redeem them back. You can redeem your firstborn animals. You can redeem your firstborn children. But listen, he says, now that I have saved them, they are mine. We have this idea that God just overlooked it. It's no big deal. God cannot overlook sin. And when you pray, when you pray for forgiveness, remember this. When you pray to God asking him forgiveness, don't just think that God's just overlooking your sin. He's not. He's looking back at that sacrifice of his son and he's applying the blood of that sacrifice to you. God cannot overlook sin. He must atone for it with the blood of his son. So when you ask for forgiveness, don't be flippant and casual with it. It costs him a great deal and it's a big, big deal to your life. And he says, because I passed over those firstborn of the Israelites, I want them back. Look at Numbers for a second. Numbers chapter 13. For all the firstborn are mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel, whether human or animal. He didn't just set them free. He claimed them for himself. Again in Numbers, every firstborn male in Israel, whether human or animal, is mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set them apart for myself. I claimed them as mine. They become my children. They're not yours anymore. Now, why does that matter? When God redeems you, he claims you. He doesn't set you free to be free. He sets you free to be his. You are now owned by the one who bought you. We have this idea that now that we've been set free from sin, we're our own people, we're not slaves at all. The New Testament says, uh-uh, you are no longer slaves to sin, you are now slaves to Christ. He owns you.
As an example of this, look at Romans chapter 12 with me when he says, therefore, he says the first 11 chapters of Romans talks about how God purchased you. And he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy that we've talked about for 11 chapters now, to give your bodies as a living sacrifice. I want you now to live for him because the truth is, while he redeemed you and set you free, he set you free for him. And now you are his, but he doesn't want to kill you. He doesn't want you to die for him. He wants you to live for him. You now are a living sacrifice. You live your life for him on behalf of another person, and that's where you are. You put all this together, all these things about, uh, about the, uh, the Passover together, and this is what you get. Jesus was offered as the sinless sacrifice on our behalf. And like the Israelites, several times in these plagues from number four on, God made a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. When the darkness comes or when the hail comes or when these certain plagues come, it will hit the Egyptians, but it won't hit the people where Israel lives. And they didn't have to do anything. They had to do nothing to earn this distinction. It's just God decided to do it. But when it comes to the 10th plague, when it comes to the 10th one, God offers Israel the ability to be distinct. But this time they had to do something in order to get that distinction. They had to offer that animal. They had to apply that blood to their house. And they had to eat that meal inside. And when they did all those things, God honored the distinction. And God offers us the same thing. I'm willing to make a distinction between people who've been created. Some of them will be judged for their sins. Some of them will re be redeemed. And I'm going to show a distinction in people. And it's up to you to decide whether you want that distinction applied to you or not. So Jesus offers his life as a sacrifice. And we respond to God by repenting, being immersed. And when we are immersed in that water, we come in contact with the blood of Jesus. It's applied. It was supplied on the cross, but it's applied in baptism. And we become a person who's been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And we're ready then to respond immediately by living holy lives. And we keep sin and worldliness from our lives as much as possible. He owns us, and we become living sacrifices. Our lives are like the Passover in this sense. God came. We're told in Hebrews, Jesus has, has appeared twice. The first time he came was to bring salvation. And the next time he comes is to bring judgment. The first time he comes, it's to offer blood. And if we'll take that blood and apply it to our own souls in the waters of baptism, if we'll do that... When he comes the next time to bring judgment, he's going to come across the land, he's going to come across the earth, he's going to come across history, and he's going to divide up people. And those, those he sees his son's blood applied to, he will pass over in judgment and they will live forever with him. Those who do not have that blood will be sent off to judgment. The second appearance is not for him to show mercy. The second appearance of Jesus, which it will come at any time, is for him to bring the final judgment. He appeared the first time to offer blood. And he's given this great big gap, unlike the Passover time, where the night of, he gives these instructions and they have to decide whether they're going to do it right then immediately. Here's what God does. He comes and he brings his son into the earth, onto the earth, into the world, and he offers his blood. And he gives us until the end of time to decide, do we want to put the blood of Jesus on us or not? 
And the rest of history gives people time to decide, am I going to take the blood he supplied and apply it to my soul and face judgment with it, or am I just going to live my own way and disregard this distinction? The choice is yours, and you have the right to make your own decision. But when he comes and he splits the skies and when the trumpet sounds and he returns down here and, he, and, he, and we rise to meet the Lord in the air or whatever happens to us, if you do not have the blood on you, he will not pass over you. You will face him face to face in judgment and it will not be a pretty sight. If you have, he will see the blood and he will pass over you. Do we observe the Passover? No. We live the Passover through Christ as Christians. And those of you tonight who've already made this decision, you just continue to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, keeping sin and worldliness as far from you as possible. And you'll be ready when the Lord comes. If you've not done that and applied the blood of Jesus to you, all I can say to you is you'll be just like the Egyptians. And here in uh, two lessons from now, you're going to see what happens to those people. But on that night, what we know is God came through and he judged those people and he made it forever obvious who the God of the universe is. If you will already bow before the God of the universe, he will apply the blood of his son to you even right tonight and you'll never have to fear again the coming of the Lord because he will pass over you, he's promised. There's your invitation. Let's sing. What can wash?